From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters on the road from the Four Corners. Heritage orchards in McElmo Canyon grow and preserve Colorado's apple history. Sometimes that work is a tasty treasure hunt. This Grimes and that Thunderbolt were in the same orchard right across the canyon from us. I think this wine sap was in that one too. And these were all apples. When we first grafted these, we had no clue what they were. Then, more than a third of Fort Lewis College students today are indigenous. But the school is reckoning with its legacy of violence against Native people. U.S. history is presented from more of a discovery, exploration, conquering, settling, etc. But those are all code words for colonization and Christianity. Plus, how did closing a gate in Utah lead to felony charges for a couple from Durango? And we pull another cookbook from the kitchen shelf. CPR is powered by your generosity. And when it comes to membership, monthly donations make a larger gift more manageable. It's why many donors are making the switch from annual giving to monthly giving, setting up their monthly Evergreen membership with a checking or savings account. It's easy to change how and when you give. Email membership at CPR.org. That's membership at CPR.org. And thank you for your support. On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. This is Colorado Matters On the Road Again, live from Durango. I'm Avery Lill. Jude Schoenemeyer uses two words to describe the orchard on his property in McElmo Canyon. (laughs) Chaos and anarchy. Ironically, that's the goal. Lush native grasses ramble freely between pear and apple trees. Some of the brush stands taller than I do. His flock of turkeys keeps grasshoppers from mowing these trees down. There's utter chaos out here. These grasses, though, are what take the moisture deep into the soil, and then they hold it in there and protect it. This was an old peach orchard that Jude Schoenemeyer and his wife Addie bought 20 years ago. This was all open ground, constantly cultivated with a tiller so that it was all barren ground. The old part of the peach orchard that was here was pretty well dead. It went a year to went 2002 without getting irrigated, unfortunately. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we figured that we could figure it out as we went along. So we started planting both grasses and trees. Now? You can see trees that are about 10, 15 years old, some of them, and then there's a few younger ones poking out from the taller grasses. There's rabbit brush that's starting to bloom yellow. There is some salvias. There's some beautiful blue salvias around. There's echinaceas and coneflowers. There's apples and pears that are starting to ripen. This orchard is still pretty young. You can see the yellow of the winter bananas or the red of the wine saps or uh, the brighter yellow of the grimes golden down there. There are some thunderbolts over here on the tree that are nice and deep red. Schoenemeyer admits that if you want to maximize fruit production for a grocery store, this is not the way to do it. The trees are spaced yards apart so their root systems have room to expand, and they've lost track of how many varieties of apple they grow. Well over a hundred. But Jude and Addie aren't in the fruit business to sell a lot of apples, or pears or peaches for that matter. They're heritage fruit tree experts, and their passion is preserving Colorado's apple-growing history and to restore what they call a lost fruit economy. In 2014, they co-founded the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project. Morp has a number of projects 
and several orchards in Montezuma County. He hopes those orchards outlast him. We are a continuum. Everything we do is about generations. Everything we do is about what we received, and everything we do is about what we can pass on. It's really important. These are living things. These are the work of people. These are the dreams of people. These are the good or the bad ideas of people for so many years. Um, And these are ideas about how to be self-sufficient and how to be fed, how to do the most basic functions of a human being. What are we going to have for dinner? What are we going to have for breakfast? How are we going to survive this? So the history of it, we didn't plan on doing this, but it's it it has become wrapped in what we do. I mean, it's it's so important. Every single tree, I mean, we work with seedlings. We work with trees that are brand new creations. And in the nursery, we're constantly working with little trees, with, with little baby trees. But in orchards, now because we've been able to plant quite a few orchards ourselves in schools and at the gold medal and now out at the hub and in Dolores and other places. We we are around a lot of young trees, but we still spend a lot of time with old trees. Um, you, you learn so much from them. These old trees and orchards, they're clones. Genetically, each and every one of them is, is identical. They are absolutely gi- genetically identical, but they are also living creatures. And as living creatures, they are each their own unique life form. There is no one exactly like them on Earth. They are absolutely unique. And you spend time with them, and you learn from them. You learn so much from them. And then there's the stories of how they got to that place. There's the story of how they managed to survive at this place for this long. Schoenemeyer is also well aware that McElmo Canyon's history of apple orchards follows the forced removal of the indigenous people who lived and practiced agriculture there, including the Navajo Nation and Ute people. Wasn't that long ago. Now Morp sends some of its trees to be planted in the Navajo Nation and Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. Anytime, any place that we can get orchards going and get trees in the ground, we feel like we can help people. Every time we get to dig a hole, we feel like we're impacting the future in a positive way. That's what we want to do. We're not trying to do easy things. We're not trying to do little things. We're trying to do meaningful things. If all we wanted to do was little things, we could be a private business and do that. So how do you restore a lost fruit economy? First, you have to find the lost fruit. Before Jude and Addie had an orchard of their own, they leased a 50-year-old nursery. On a whim complete insanity, we decided to go into the nursery business. When we did that, we not only got the location, but we got the customers who had been there for the last 50 years. And these are the folks that would tell us stories of their grandparents' orchards and their great-grandparents' orchards and all these trees around, and they would give us little snippets. They would give us copies from the Montezuma Journal from the 1800s and 1900s and county fair records and all of this crazy, crazy bits of information. Um, 
and we'd see these lists and we'd see how there were like 50 different, over 50 different varieties of apples grown at county fairs in Montezuma County. And we're like, holy cow. And we didn't know most of these varieties. There were things we had never heard of before and we'd start trying to find them. And you got to remember this was in the world before internet existed. <laughs> and uh, so you had to use books and magazines and catalogs and spend time trying to snag people down and um, but over time we got to where we could start finding you know some of these rare trees people would ask for them and we'd try and find them some different unusual trees and then over over time it occurred to us that many of these trees that we still see all around us in the county might be some of those same trees that we used to see in county fair records and that maybe some of these really odd varieties still exist and so we said okay well let's see if we can find any of them let's let's try finding one what comes next to me sounds like apple treasure hunting we decided we were going to go find this apple called the thunderbolt we had seen it in Miriam hartman's apple shed edition this was sort of a real estate guide for the montezuma valley from the early 1900s talking about how great everything was and all kinds of water and great land and everybody loves it and move in here um, one of the apples they talked about in there was the Thunderbolt. So we went and talked to some of the folks we knew, this person, Dale Jeter. Dale was actually born across the canyon from us over there. He was 92 when he passed away. He was just a gem of a human being. He was one of the kindest human beings you would ever meet in your life. Miss Vivian Kenyon, who, who we leased the gold medal from, Vivian knew Dale's grandmother, Cora Dobbins. Cora is, is down at She's buried down at Battle Rock. She said Cora was one of the nicest human beings. Uh, Dale's grandson, Chris, still lives over there one winter and Christmas. He went and plowed out after a big snow, plowed out everybody's driveway. Just those kind of people. But Dale, so we'd asked Dale if he knew Thunderbolt. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know that apple. I remember it. He's like, talk to my grandson, Chris. There are probably some down there. There was one down there. I don't know if there was or not. So Chris let us go on to his place. There was still a remnant orchard that dated back from Noah Barnes, the Watermelon King. And I'm sure the trees came from Jasper Hall when Jasper Hall lived just right over next door there. Um, and we didn't know what they were at the time. There was a half a dozen, five trees maybe left left standing. And so we went and took cuttings and grafted all of them and then started growing them out here. And over time, we recognized one of those apples matched a thunderbolt that we had gotten from a place up in uh, north of Cortez, very close to the Orchard Hub, a place that we knew Jasper Hall had worked also. Um, and the person at that that place knew it was a thunderbolt. We had, you know, the beloved old timer that could identify the apple. It took us, We even before we started seeing apples off of this tree, we could look at the cyan on it, we could look at the growth and say, yep, that's a thunderbolt, it looks just like it. So initially it was like find an apple grow it out and then see if you've got another one to match it to as a control shenemeyer led us to a tree in his orchard with big dusky red apples i suspect this isn't going to be ready yet. oh my gosh it's so crisp yeah and let me tell you even slightly unripe that piece of history was sweet tangy and delicious first time i ever had a thunderbolt was um I had it before a phrase. It's the, it's uh, where those other thunderbolt trees came from, and uh, it was okay. I was like, yeah, it's all right. It's a decent apple. There was like one thunderbolt, and then there was about twenty real old winter bananas at this place. We were just there a few days ago. It's still this gorgeous, gorgeous orchard, um, but 
we went back and I was like, okay, yeah, it's decent, but like, whatever. And then we went back a couple weeks later and it had frozen hard and it had frozen hard enough to where all the other apples on the trees were just mush. I mean, they went to utter, utter mushness. And uh, you cut into this thing and it just exploded. Just the flavor was, you could not believe how good it was. It was like, you've never eaten anything like that. You couldn't imagine anything in that like that could ever exist, you know. Schottenmeyer is full of stories like these, combing through newspapers and even collections of vintage wax apples for clues to what kind of apples grew in Montezuma County during its fruit-growing heyday in the late 18 and early 1900s. It's a beautiful sand loam soil in the canyon. and At this point, Montezuma County was still free of codling moth. You can't understate how important that was. It was codling moth and not prohibition that caused the destruction of the orchards on the Front Range. Codling moth came in and became endemic in the late 1800s and caused the price of land to be worth more for development than it was for fruit production. When you were getting beautiful apples, the apples had a huge price to them. They were selling a dollar and a quarter per apple on Blake Street in Denver in like 1859. I think... You'd have to go back and look at this. That's today's standard. I just saw this a couple of days ago, and I've already forgot it, but it's probably like, I don't know, $50 an apple or something crazy like that. that You could safely say they've never achieved that price again. Yeah, no, because everything everything back there on that side of the mountains had to come in wagon. It had to come in wagon from Missouri or Iowa. So um, that's why people saw when people started planting orchards in Colorado, Many, many people told them they were crazy. They said, you can't plant it this high. You don't know how cold. You don't know how hot. You don't know how dry. Everything was against it. Um, but they came in and they decided to prove that uh, it could be done here. And the story of people planting orchards in Colorado is a story of a great deal of imagination and a great deal of persistence and a great deal of collaboration you know, they had to work together to do this. And you see this in the old uh, documents about fruit growing, the old state boards, and a lot of these old correspondence that these folks did. They were really working together. They were really trying to figure out how to build an economy here and how to do something that people really thought couldn't be done. The Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project thinks that one-way heritage varieties of apple trees could be part of growing a modern fruit economy in the region again is as cider apples. So one of their latest projects is a mobile apple press. That's a big part of the economy for this. People can love their old trees, but unless there is a use for the fruit that produces money for the farmer, there's no reason to keep the trees around and we keep losing trees to hay production and we're not anti-hay, but alfalfa is a water-intensive crop um, and we feel like apples have a place here. So the mobile cider press, we we just got it in within the last month or so. We're trying to see what the crop looks like to be able to start training and using it this year. But it gives us the ability to take this about 50,000 bushel capacity that's down here mostly in Montezuma County, and turn it into a profitable value-added crop. Because juice, there's a lot of health code things in, in HACIP that we've been working through and, and trying to do to make sure we do everything right. I mean, our kids are going to drink this juice. They do drink this juice. So we don't want to do anything that gets someone sick, hurt, or dead. Um, 
but the juice has the best ability to use the fruit off of these old trees. It gives us the best access to market, both pasteurized and for cider makers. Ironically, this year in Montezuma County, where for decades now fruit has been hitting the ground unused and you couldn't give it away, let alone sell it, the cider makers here are actually scrambling for fruit, which is a great thing to see. You know, they're having to work at it. They have they have our mapping app, so they know where the trees are now, which they didn't used to have. Um, so they can go and see, you know, right down to the DNA on, on what tree was what. But the cider press gives us the ability now to take take this fruit and really put it into a product that people can have and take and enjoy, and farmers can make money again with it. Jude and Addie have learned this business from people in McElmo Canyon who've been in this for the long haul. They see themselves in this heritage apple business for the long haul as well. We think in terms of 100 years. Everything we do, we think in terms of 100 years out. We don't, you, you cannot do this kind of work and think in five-year increments. It just doesn't work. You can't think about next year. You've got to really be patiently looking forward to what you're doing and where you're going to be at and what the world is going to look like. Um, we know 100 years from now, there's going to be 100-year-old trees in Montezuma County. You know, I would hope that there will be cows underneath them. I can't really do the cow business, but I can certainly make sure there's trees around. Jude Schoenemeyer is a heritage fruit tree expert in McElmo Canyon, outside Cortez, Colorado. He co-founded the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project with his wife, Addie Schoenemeyer, to preserve Colorado's apple growing history and grow its fruit economy. At Fort Lewis College in Durango, today, more than a third of its students are indigenous. It waives tuition for people who are Native American and Alaska Native, and inclusive education is part of its mission. But its history is steeped in violence against Native people, first as a military post to combat tribal nations, then as a boarding school to force Native children to assimilate to Eurocentric culture. The college continues to reckon with that history. Lee Batsoy is the Associate Vice President for Diversity Affairs at Fort Lewis. He's also Special Advisor to the President for Indigenous Affairs. These are my clans in Navajo, and I've shared them with you to establish kinship ties with any audience members. And in my native Chickasaw, Chukma. Welcome. Osio Chukma. Lee, you're Diné. You grew up in Navajo Nation in the Four Corners region. I imagine your job at Fort Lewis is deeply personal in many ways. It is, but that's also the reason why I chose to come to Fort Lewis College. For two reasons. One, diversity, equity, and inclusion had been elevated to a higher platform, and really understanding the complicated history of the college as a former federal Indian boarding school. So it is personal to me because my parents and my aunts and uncles attended boarding schools. And I I see the effects and um, I also carry that intergenerational trauma. So it's important for me to be able to contribute to the reconciliation of Fort Lewis College and its complicated past. One of the places where that history is being played out right now is at this clock tower. Specifically, it's storyboard panels of the college's history at the base of the tower that people object to. Tell me more about those. Well, they were installed at a time when 
the clock tower was um, built and it was their depiction of what the history of the college was like as it was understood at that time. But more thought should have been taken into consideration when the Indian boarding school era panels were set up and selected. And they're inaccurate and they're a disrespectful depiction of what the boarding school experience was like. It paints more of a rosy picture. And when you look at those photos, no one, no, no student, none of them look pleased. None of them are smiling. And so to me, that photo is just, it captures what horrible experience they probably had at the boarding school. So it's important that we remove them. And we will be doing that on Monday, September 6th with a ceremonial program where we will be inviting tribal leaders and elders to take part in the ceremonial removal of those panels. How did it happen that those panels are finally coming down? Our FLC history, Fort Lewis College History Committee, was established in the fall of 2019. And listening sessions were held that semester and then in the spring when I arrived. And I now co-chair that committee. And based on those listening sessions with students, faculty, and staff, recommendations were provided to President Shridikas. And the first one was the removal of those three panels. And all 12 panels will be eventually removed. And they won't be destroyed. They will be moved to the Center of Southwest Studies for a more permanent exhibit or installation depicting the history of the college. And we had planned to do this last year. But due to the pandemic, we had postponed it twice. And when you say that those panels, they paint a rosy picture of the college's history, what specifically is in the panels or not in the panels that really stands out to you? So there's information about the original fort, information about the fort being transferred from Pagosa Springs to Hesperus. And then it talks about the establishment of um, the boarding school. What's interesting between the boarding school depiction, which is all Native students, the next set of panels is about the early days of the college, and they're all white. All the people are white. So you see that contrast. And then there's little acknowledgement throughout the other panels about the tuition waiver or honoring the 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 sacrifices that were made to establish the college itself. Much in the same way that Native American history is depicted in U.S. history books, there's the ahistoricism of the Native American experience. Tell me what that means. Basically looking at history, but not including indigenous people. U.S. history is presented from more of a discovery, exploration, conquering, settling, etc. But those are all code words for colonization and Christianity. And that's what really led to the cultural genocide and the establishment of these boarding schools, because there were so many U.S. policies. There was um, removal, termination, and when they realized that they couldn't get rid of us, because we've always been here, we will always be here. And um, they turned to assimilation. And that's what led to the establishment of boarding schools. It's a form of cultural genocide. The saying at the time was, kill the Indian, save the man, with the goal of essentially forcing children to abandon their cultures. 
In May, more than 200 children's bodies were discovered in a mass grave at an indigenous boarding school in Canada. That's prompted national scrutiny of the legacy of these schools here in the United States. Interior Secretary Deb Holland called for a comprehensive review of the harm they caused, and that includes searching for unmarked graves. Where does Fort Lewis College fit into that process? That's a big question. And we were elated to learn that Deb Holland issued that statement. And we were actually ahead of the curve because of our FLC history committee and our recommendations and looking at what is at the old fort site. Basically, we don't know what we don't know. And while there may have been some surveying that was done back in 2008, the focus was not on unmarked burials. It was more on what is currently there. And we've been asked by our community members, both internally here at Fort Lewis College, but also externally with our indigenous students and their families and tribal nations. But we are going to proceed deliberately and very carefully. And we respect and honor tribal sovereignty. So we will be working with tribal nations who sent their children here or whose children were removed and brought here against their will. So we're going to proceed with their consultation because this is not our call as an institution. You mentioned that your parents, your aunts and uncles also attended federal boarding schools in the United States and that that intergenerational trauma, it ripples through to you. We've known about the history of abuse, neglect and cultural erasure at these schools. What is it like for you to see the nation finally pay attention? It's long overdue. And Canada and Australia have both issued an apology to First Nations and Aboriginal people. And there's never been an apology issued from the U.S. federal government to Native Americans or Alaska Natives. And it's, it's timely. Maybe these surveys and these investigations at federal Indian boarding schools will now lead to a, an apology. And that's what, what really would... It's important to understand the wrongdoing that happened, and um, then the healing process can begin. And even before Fort Lewis was a boarding school, it was a military post in Pagosa Springs, and it was founded in 1878 to fight Native American tribes. With that kind of history, even before the boarding school history, what does it mean for you, for the college, to meaningfully acknowledge its past and to make sure that students are aware? Right now, we're developing training modules for our faculty, staff, and students to understand that we are a Native American-serving institution and that we were once a boarding school, which led to the establishment of the tuition waiver because there's so many misconceptions about the history of our college, but also the reason why the tuition waiver exists. And that's, that requires a certain level of cultural competency And recently, my colleague, Majel Boxer, and I led an information session on the history of the boarding school, as well as providing information about our tuition waiver. And we take pride in continuing to offer the tuition waiver because it is a treaty obligation, a federal obligation, a state obligation that is still being upheld to this day when so many other treaties and other obligations were broken. So we take pride in that. We also have a land acknowledgement that really describes 
the the connection of the original inhabitants of this land, the ancestral homelands of the Nuchu people, the Yu people, and the shared and communal spaces of the Hickory Apache, the Navajo Nation, the Pueblos of New Mexico, and the Hopi Nation in Arizona, as well as all the other tribes who uh, have ties to what is now known as the state of Colorado. The college also has a tribal advisory council. Tell me more about its role in empowering students and making sure that Fort Lewis is open and accurate about its history. Fort Lewis College has always worked with tribal nations and communities, but President Shredikis and I believe that it was, it was time, it was apropos to really establish an entity that is comprised of tribal nations and neighbors. And to that end, we've established it to talk about the relationships that we have to strengthen and to enhance them. And the tribal members include those that I mentioned, Southern Ute, Ute Mountain, Hickory Apache, the All Pueblo Council of Governors, the Navajo Nation, the Hopi Nation. And because we have a prominent number of Alaska Native students, the First Alaskans Institute is a member of the Tribal Council as well, the Tribal Advisory Council. And we try to meet on a regular basis and we are looking at ways in which to strengthen again our relationships, but also for them to understand what we are today, how we are embracing and welcoming our native students who come in from the lower 48 and Alaska. And it's important for us to have that type of transparency because sometimes when institutions, whether they're Native American serving or not, when they work with tribal nations, Tribal nations aren't viewed as equal partners. So we want to establish working relationships where they are equal partners so that we can develop career opportunities such as internships or research projects where we don't come in with the savior mentality, where we ask them if they want to collaborate with us, what are some of the key issues that you would like to have explored or investigated as opposed to us coming in telling them that these are the issues that we've identified for you. We value their partnerships. So we, again, out of respect for tribal sovereignty, we ask them how we can assist them with some of the pressing issues that they may have. Before we go, I wonder if you can share a story that resonates with you about a student's or maybe even your own experience that speaks to the reconciling history of the college. So in one of the listening sessions, that I attended shortly after my arrival on campus. Before these sessions began, there was either blessing or an honor song that was sung by one of the students. And in that particular session that I was in, the student was um, from a different tribe, not Navajo, and she sang an honor song, a blessing song in her language. And it was really interesting because I was moved by it and I felt that she was singing to me, even though she was singing to everyone. I didn't understand the words, but I could feel it. I could feel the power and the message that she was providing. And it was like a coming home song for me. And that's what really, um, that's what struck me. And I knew that there was a strong sense of native pride here and that just reaffirmed what I had. Um, my observations were validated and confirmed by that experience. 
That is powerful. Thank you for sharing. And Lee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Lee Bitsoy is the Associate Vice President for Diversity Affairs at Fort Lewis College. He's also Special Advisor to the President for Indigenous Affairs. He holds a doctorate in higher education management. Mark Franklin closed the gate to a corral in Utah's San Juan County in 2017. Like many folks from Durango, Franklin and his wife, Rose Chilcote, crossed the state line to camp in Utah. Neither of them guessed that little action, closing a gate, would embroil them in felony charges and years-long legal battles. But Jonathan P. Thompson's new book, Sagebrush Empire, takes the long view on the escalating tensions over public lands. And it puts that closed gate in context. Thompson is an environmental journal- journalist focused on the American West. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. People have christened Franklin and Chilcote's story Gate Gate. What happened? Uh, well, <laughs> um, as you say, Mark Franklin closed a gate. He went camping and, and stopped at a corral. It just so happens. And there's a little bit of a story behind that. But anyway, basically, there were some cows in the corral, and uh, there was two openings in the corral. One of them was the gate that he was standing next to, and he closed the gate in order to put something between himself and uh, the cows, which he thought were kind of scary, and uh, drove away. Um, And uh, a couple weeks later, well, there's another big story there too, but a couple weeks later they were charged. He and his wife, Rose, who's a prominent environmentalist in Durango, were... uh, charged with felony charges of attempting to kill livestock by closing that gate. Um, and they, they could have faced uh, years of prison time, in fact, for the, those charges. So we'll come back to that story in a moment. Your publisher, Tory House Press, asked you to write a book about Gategate, and you sort of did that. Tell me about the route you decided to take. Yeah, they did ask me to write about that event and about the uh, sort of the political retribution and the prosecution that happened after that. Um, for me, that that wasn't enough to hold a narrative for a whole book. Um, but then I started looking at it and I saw that really this event was sort of the latest escalation in the public land wars that have played out in San Juan County. Well, they've played out across the entire West, um, especially in places where there's lots of public land, but they've played out kind of more consistently and and persistently in San Juan County uh, than probably anywhere else, I think. And uh, this was sort of the latest escalation of that. And so I started thinking about it in terms of just being one more um, volley in, in these wars. And so I started looking at trying to figure out why San Juan County has become the epicenter of whether you call it the Sagebrush Rebellion or the public land wars or what have you. Why is it that this one remote county with 15,000 people in it, um, what is it about that county and its history that has made it the epicenter of this battle? Now, to do that, Sagebrush Empire traces millennia of geological and human history in the Four Corners region. You're trying to tell the story of public lands in America. Why did you back up that far? Um, because the, uh, well, first of all, uh, 
public lands are that before you know they before they were public lands they haven't always been public lands before they were public lands they were indigenous lands and they were stolen by the federal government basically and then in order to give away to homesteaders and miners and and whatnot um so you have to go back to the history of the land itself in order to really tell this story and in order to do that you have to go back into indigenous history uh, which spans like you say millennia um, they were here for thousands of years before the the white people showed up and they're still here so that's that's obvious kind of obvious i think that i'd have to include that as far as the geologic history goes that's important in a place like san juan county because that's what shaped the landscape and the landscape is what shapes in many ways shapes the culture and that's what's being fought over. So um, I felt it was important to include some of that. It, it doesn't go super in depth into the geologic history, but I do try to keep, try to tie that into the, or weave it into the narrative. And bringing forward to these tensions that we're seeing, you know, in, in Gategate, um, we have to talk about the Sagebrush Rebellion, you call it, or Sagebrush Rebels. They're an important thread in the history of these tensions over public lands. How do you explain what Sagebrush rebellion is or was? Um, I think that the easiest way to explain it is, you know, it's a very complex kind of um, movement, but the easiest way to explain it is basically it's a movement to try to get local control over public lands. Uh, I mean, I think that's the easiest way to explain it. So in other words, the whole Bundy debacle, that was kind of um, an offshoot of the Sagebrush Rebellion because they wanted, they felt like they were entitled, their cows, on public land. And so they wanted to have that control over that public land. I mean, another way to put it is that there's this sense of entitlement to public land um, by the people who live closest to that public land. And so they try to fight against land use regulations, um, against monument designations, against that sort of thing. Um, and as time has gone on, really, the extractive industries have come to back up the Sagebrush Rebellion. So it's become something else entirely. In some ways, there's also that element as well. And then also another element is that it's kind of become sort of an ideological movement that's uh, all tied up within conservatism or right-wing kind of extremism in general. And it's more than 300 pages to trace these tensions. But can you give us maybe a teaser of how these culminate, how these different forces culminate in Gategate? Well, you know, in Gategate played out on uh, April 1st, 2017. And so really that that's kind of a a critical junction in time as far as all this goes, because it was a few months after President Obama had designated Bears Ears National Monument. And that was a huge fight right there. I mean, that was probably the latest big chapter, the biggest battle in this these public land wars um, in San Juan County, Utah. And so uh, Mark Franklin and Rose Chilcote actually closed a gate. It was on state land, but it was within the monument boundaries that Obama had designated. And of course, uh, president Trump, uh, Donald Trump had been elected president just a few months earlier, and uh, he was in the process of shrinking 
that monument. He hadn't done it yet, but he was in the process of doing so and kind of had promised already that he would do so. Um, and eventually, actually, the, that corral in that area, the Valley of the Gods, would be taken out of Bears Ears National Monument. Um, so that's one way. There's kind of the big picture. The smaller picture is that Rose Chilcote, um, who is Mark Franklin's wife, was, as I said, she's a prominent, not only a prominent environmentalist, but she was very active in San Juan County in trying to stop uh, unsustainable public lands grazing in order to keep uh, motorized vehicles out of sensitive uh, areas and that so forth. And we should say that um, charges against, against Franklin were reduced greatly. Charges against Chilcote were dropped completely. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Jonathan P. Thompson is an environmental journalist focused on the American West. His new book, Sagebrush Empire, came out this month. This is Colorado Matters on the road again from Durango and the Four Corners on CPR News. When Susan Anderson got off the train in Fraser in 1909, she brought with her two things she picked up in Michigan, a medical degree and tuberculosis. She had tried to set up a medical practice in Cripple Creek, but women doctors were not welcome. Denver and Greeley were equally unreceptive. By the time she crossed the Continental Divide, Susan Anderson was very ill and hoped the clean mountain air would help. It did, and soon she built a medical reputation, first among a few women who brought children and eventually husbands. They called her Doc Susie. Traveling on foot, ski, snowshoe, and by train, she saved many lives and brought more into the world. By some accounts, she delivered more than half the population of Fraser. Her home still stands there, and a street bears her name. Doc Susie Avenue. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. You'd be forgiven if you hadn't heard of Animus City, Colorado. The town was swallowed up by Durango in 1948, but its old schoolhouse still stands, and it's home to the Animus Museum. It's where the next installment of The Kitchen Shelf takes us, our series about vintage Colorado cookbooks. Here's my colleague, Ryan Warner. For more than a year and a half now, Coloradans have dug out their favorite local cookbooks and shared them with us. When this next one hit my inbox from southwest Colorado, I thought it was a typo, a cookie book. But in fact, Carolyn, it's it's not a typo, right? This is a cookie book. It is indeed. All of the recipes in it are cookies. Carolyn Baura is a volunteer with the Animus Museum, which compiled this Animus City cookbook. And uh, which throwback recipe did you make from it, Carolyn? We made and, and I say we because one of my history buddies helped me with the cooking aspects of it. We made the pineapple cookies. The recipe originated on a scrappy little piece of paper that was in the museum archives. Printed across the top of the scrappy paper was from the desk of Warren Buckley. Warren Buckley. And I'll just say the pineapple cookies, I think, are some of the special occasion cookies. Do I have that right? You do indeed. The book is divided into three sections with everyday cookies, suitable for feeding to children, putting in their lunchbox, and then special occasion with a little bit of upgrade on ingredients, maybe suitable for a lady's tea. And then, of course, we have the holiday section. The holiday section, which includes, by the way, some date tea cakes that sounded pretty good to me. Uh, The million-dollar question is, how are the pineapple cookies? 
they were really quite good. We made two batches. The first one loosely followed directions. We just wanted to see if this was worth pursuing at all or if the whole thing would just be ridiculously horrible. (laughs) And it was good enough. We did it again and followed the recipe to the letter. And we got a moist kind of a cakey recipe, just a hint of the pineapple flavor and not super sweet. I'm not a fan of the sickly sweet baked goods. And these were just really good. And you say they're cake-like in consistency, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not crunchy. They're moist and cakey. Oh, I feel like it's such a win when you bake and something stays moist, you know? Well, and we're at a high enough altitude. Anytime we bake without modifying a recipe, you do it with a bit of a devil-may-care attitude of, well, this may work or it may it may crash and burn. Durango, at, what's the altitude there? 6,500, yeah. Yeah, 6,512. Specifically. What do we know about these pineapple cookies and where they came from? We don't know a lot about the origin of the recipe. Warren Buckley worked for the schools here. He came to La Plata County in 1931. His brother Wendell joined him a few years later. They were teachers. Wendell became principal of the Animus City School at one point. And when he was drafted into the Army for World War II, his brother Warren took his place. They taught math and science. Wendell taught chemistry and history. And they remained as principals until they retired. Hmm. And one of our local parks here that it abuts the old high school building uh, is named now Buckley Park. Buckley Park. So just from a historic standpoint, we thought we need to try this recipe Although why a recipe would be written on a notepad from the principal's desk uh, remains lost to history. (laughs) Well, I think people feel strongly about oatmeal cookies, love them or hate them. Uh, The oatmeal cookie recipe in this book comes from Zippy McDaniel, born in Rico, Colorado, a former silver mining center in Dolores County. And she came up from modest means, but her family became a pillar of the community You've basically compiled cookie recipes from all over your archives, right? Yes. We have several cookbooks in our collection. You know, those community cookbooks that churches and ladies groups used to do as fundraisers. We have some that go way, way back to the earliest days of Durango. We also have some of those little recipe booklets that are put out by brand names. We have one from... I think it's the late 40s, maybe early 50s, that was put out by the Corn Council. So it has, you know, a lot of caro syrup and mazola and corn-based things. Oh, yeah, there's a caro syrup cookie recipe in this book. It is. And we haven't tried that one yet. (laughs) Okay. So perhaps some of your listeners will take that on. Applesauce cookies as well. And so you compiled the cookie recipes from all of these various books and scraps of paper into the cookie book. Correct. And I'd love you to describe your surroundings right now, because you're in the schoolhouse. Actually, I'm not, because the school, it's a very old building with very high ceilings and a lot of hard surfaces, and the acoustics in it sometimes get a little echoey. (gasps) Oh, that was so thoughtful of you. Well, describe it for us. We're not talking a one-room schoolhouse. This is a three-story affair. It really is. Actually, it's a a four-story affair, but the fourth floor is just attic space. But it's tucked into a hill enough that we have ground-level entrances on two floors, and it's a magnificent stone building. Historically, Anima City was founded in 1876 as a support town when they discovered precious minerals up in the high country. 
So Animus City had hotels and assay offices and mercantiles, and it, it was hopping. It was hopping. And then when the railroad came in, they did what railroads did, and they built their own town two miles south. And they called theirs Durango. <laughs> uh, but they built this sandstone building from locally quarried stone that was the most imposing building in Animus City. So it was not only the school, it was a community center because it was bigger than the town hall. It was the biggest public building. It hosted PTA events. During World War One. Red Cross operations happened there. It's just a huge anchor in the community. It opened in 1905 with spacious classrooms and steam heat. And I suppose that any number of cookies would have been consumed inside, be it by school children or otherwise. That is our assumption. Between kids' lunches and then PTA things and community events and, you know, receptions, we imagine there must have been millions of gallons of punch and millions of cookies served. Including your own pineapple cookies. Thank you so much for being with us, Carolyn. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun to chat with you. Carolyn Baura is a volunteer with the Animus Museum in Durango. She shared recipes from the Animus City Cookie Book. Baura spoke with Ryan Warner for our vintage cookbook series, The Kitchen Shelf. At CPR.org, find four recipes, pineapple, oatmeal, date, and caro syrup cookies. And if you have an old Colorado cookbook to share, snap a picture of the cover and email coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. I'm Kirby Bennett. I'm a bookseller at Maria's Bookshop in Durango, and this is Colorado Matters on the Road. The team guiding our journey is... Carl Bielek. Allie Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. With special thanks to Nancy Lofholm, this is Colorado Matters on the road again from Durango and the Four Corners. You're with CPR News and KRCC.